I know. <laughs> Good morning, beloved. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, please. Matthew chapter 6. This morning we'll be finishing up this little four-part series on the disciples' prayer. Uh, Though, Lord willing, next week, unless we have a fire or explosion, I do want to follow up uh, next Sunday with an additional uh, week of teaching just to cover some other areas of prayer we haven't had a chance to uh, get to yet. Um, Though I'd also really um, encourage you to attend the 9.30 um, Sunday morning study. Um, Pastor Rick is also leading on prayer. That will uh, likely run right through the summer and will um, certainly go much more in-depth and um, participation is um, encouraged. Um, It's going to be just a great resource as we continue to grow collectively as the body of Christ in prayer and individually in our uh, own communion with God. Um, I want to begin this morning by uh, reading verses uh, 9 through 13 again, as our dear Lord has been teaching us to pray. He says in verse 9, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now over the last four weeks we've been learning how we are to pray. Our teacher has been none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself who has given us this model of prayer, therefore we be fitting for us to listen well, to learn well, to apply well the things that our dear Lord himself has taught us. I know in my own prayer life, he has been constantly shaping and remolding as this prayer really touches uh, every area of need for us and every element of glorifying and praising God is a really a comprehensive masterpiece the more I look at it as all the necessary parts of true prayer are included. And certainly set in bold contrast to the inadequate and the unacceptable prayer that was common in his time. If you were uh, with us all the way back to week one, you remember that the Lord first of all pointed out the Um, failings of prayer that were going on in his culture during this time. And he really sort of divided it into two groups. There was the praying of the Pharisees and the praying of the pagans. The praying of the Pharisees, you will note in verse 5, was characterized by hypocrisy. Jesus warned, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. This was the widest street corners that they may be seen by men. Our Lord says that they were nothing more than actors that were parading themselves for the applause of men. They weren't praying for God's glory to be on display. No, they were praying that they would be seen by men. And then there were the pagans. If you notice in verse 7, it says, and when you pray... 
Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. The Pharisees then prayed hypocritically. The pagans prayed almost mechanically. And so if the sin of the Pharisees was selfishness, the sin of the pagans was mindlessness. And so Jesus sets over and against that how a true son or daughter of the king ought to pray. Our prayer is never to be hypocrisy, and it's never to be simple mechanics of just going through the motion. We are never to pray as a parade of our own supposed spirituality, and we are never to pray as a ritual, as some you know, empty, repeated routine of phrases we throw together. And yet, isn't it amazing how this very prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which is set in contrast to that kind of praying, has been used as a vehicle for both hypocritical praying and ritualistic praying. How many times have people stood up and just muttered the Lord's Prayer hypocritically as part of some ritual or their hearts not right before God? How do we guard ourselves from praying against such kinds of empty and worth nothing prayers? Well, if you've been studying with us, you know simply and only this prayer is a focus on God. More than anything else, this prayer exalts God in his person, in his attributes, in his powerful, wondrous works. And that is, after all, the thrust of this prayer. True prayer, then, is in humility, expressing absolute dependence upon God. And that's what our Lord is after. This prayer is not self-centered. It's God-centered. It is truth-centered. And as we think of our thoughts that are true about God and we speak our prayers, is to actually ultimately be for his own glory. Hypocrites pray because they have a wrong view of God. They think that they're more important than God, that God serves them, that we don't serve God. Ritualists pray because they have a wrong view of God because they don't understand that God is a God of love who desires to grant them things. And so to badger God with their endless mutterings as if he's supposed to be intimidated into some kind of a response. So to pray properly, we must allow the word of God to then form our knowledge of him. And as I've been studying this prayer over and over the last couple of weeks, you begin to notice that every petition in this prayer promises us something that God has already guaranteed us. And that is very different than your name it and claim it prayer. Because notice, in every single petition that there, nothing to the fact that we are to be begging God for what is reluctantly dispensed on his behalf. No, this is a child of God. Rather, it's simply laying claim to what God has already promised us. For example, you hallow God's name when you're living for his kingdom on earth. That's his desire. And then each day that your life represents his kingdom on earth, his will is being done. And when we ask God that he would give us our day, our daily bread, the Bible says God will supply all of your needs according to the riches and glory in Christ. And that is why Jesus says at the end of this chapter, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else you need will be added unto you. He has also already granted to us in Christ absolute and total forgiveness. And he has already promised us that he will not lead us in temptation, 
For as we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, he will make our paths straight. Jesus says in Mark 11, verse 24, All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Wow. If you want to see these prayers manifested, beloved, you pray in accordance to God's word. You pray in accordance to God's promises. And you believe that God is in fact faithful to his word. So you see, the more we understand about the promises of God, the richer our prayers then become. And so we're praying here, not in a begging fashion. And all we are really having to do then is to register with God the need and having met the conditions, God responds now there are conditions right we've seen this it's one thing to pray hallowed be your name but if there's impurity in my life if there's sin in my life god's name cannot be hallowed through me but if i meet the conditions and my life is pure his name is being hallowed and if my life is pure his kingdom is being made manifest and if i will submit to his will and obedience his will will be done and if I'm living as I ought to live before him, he will meet my daily needs. And if I have forgiven my brothers and sisters, he promises then he will cleanse and forgive me. And if my desire is to walk in the path of his righteousness, he will lead me away from temptation into the things that are pure and good. Now, as we've noted these last couple of weeks, all the features of these prayers, of this prayer, speaks to God our father who art in heaven this speaks of God's paternity he is our heavenly father hallowed be your name that's God's priority your kingdom come that's God's plan your will be done that's God's purpose give us this day our daily bread that's God's provision and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors that is God's pardon and now this morning we come to verse 13 and the final petition, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a prayer of God's protection. God's protection. We move then from our physical needs and our spiritual needs to what we might call our moral needs. It encompasses all of it, but verse 12 deals with our past sins, and verse 13 deals with our future ones. And let me just sort of say something. Here's a footnote. If you've been uh, truly redeemed, uh, I believe in my heart you are just concerned with the, your future sins of being avoided as your past sins have been forgiven. I mean, everybody's really happy that our past has been forgiven. Praise God. And if that is a genuine expression of true saving faith, I believe that we are to be just as concerned that we be delivered from future ones. And somebody comes along and says, well, I've already been forgiven, past, present, and future, so I'm just going to go on and do whatever I want to do and just go live it up. I'm going to uh, sin that grace may abound. It's all forgiven anyway. I would question the legitimacy of such a claim of salvation. Because a true son or daughter of God, this prayer says, is not only concerned with the past is being forgiven, but that future sins are being avoided. Why? Because to be a believer is to have a changed attitude towards sin. 
It is on one hand, thank you, God, for the forgiveness of the past. And please, God, deliver me from the sins of the future. The sinner whose evil past has been forgiven longs to be delivered from the tyranny of sin in the future. I know what sin has done in my past. I don't want to get involved again in that into the future. God, God has been so gracious to forgive me from the past. I'm not anxious to tread on his grace in the future. And so the expression of our Lord is this, as we touch the point of human need at its deepest, deepest place. We not only need forgiveness, we need more than that. We need preservation. We need deliverance. We need to be forgiven when we sin, yes, but we also need to be delivered so we don't go on sinning. And that is the cry of verse 13. The true Christian doesn't seek license to sin, Rather, he seeks sanctification in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people have been confused over this petition. Look at it there in verse 13 with me. At first, it seems rather simple. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We say, well, at first, that seems pretty clear. You know, keep us out of trouble, God. Keep us out of trouble. But as you look at it a little closer, several questions are immediately drawn to your attention. Number one, do not lead us into temptation. I mean, we have to ask God to do that. Does God lead us into temptation if we don't ask him? Can a holy, righteous, pure, undefiled, blameless, unblemished, virtuous God possibly lead anyone into temptation? And then do we have to ask him to deliver us from evil? I mean, if we don't ask him, is he going to put us into evil? That's a dilemma, some will say. Now, uh, some of these people will say, no, you see the word temptation there actually means trial. So the prayer is better translated, lead us not into trials. But wait a minute, James chapter 1 says, count it all as joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience and patience has its perfect work. But if you take it as temptation, then you've got another problem because James chapter 1 verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So how can we say, Lord, don't tempt us when the Bible says he never will anyways? <laughs> On the other hand, if we say, no, don't lead us into a trial, Lord, then we're denying another verse in James chapter 1. That says, count it all joy on the various trials. You see the problem? No matter how you sort of deal with this word, it seems to leave us with a, a problem. So let's see if we can't kind of deal with that problem as we go along. I think you'll see the point. Um, let me say, first of all, uh, what you need to keep in mind. And I think um, um, John Chrysostom, uh, um, one of the early church fathers, actually got this right. He wrote, um, this particular petition is the most natural appeal of human weakness when it faces danger. This particular petition is the most natural appeal of human weakness as it faces danger. In other words, it's not so rational as it is emotional. It's the cry of the heart. It is the utterance of a heart that despises and hates the uh, potential of sin. And so we really don't look at this very like precise theological frame of reference. 
so much as we hear it as the pain of the heart, the cry out to God for deliverance from encroaching evil. Now, I realize that Christian character is strengthened by trials. I realize that I grow in my trials. I realize that trials have a perfecting work. I also realize that God doesn't tempt me. God never tempts anybody at any time for any reason to do anything wrong. That would defy his own nature. So some will argue, well, then we have a paradox here. But I'd argue it's not an unknown paradox that we don't see elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, the Bible says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad when they persecute you. But then if you go to Matthew chapter 10, it says when you face persecution in the city, flee. <laughs> so what are we supposed to do? Stand there and rejoice or run? There, there's a, a paradox there. There is a sense in which we run from persecution, but when it catches us, we can know the joy in the midst of it. You see? There's a sense in which we resist a trial. Nobody likes a trial. Nobody seeks after a trial. We, we run from a trial. There's a dread and fear in our hearts about going through certain trials, but we know that even in the midst of those trials, there's a working of strength that is happening. There's an exercise of spiritual muscle, and we're better from them and stronger from them. So it's not unlike our, our dear Lord who prayed, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I mean, there was something in his humanness that didn't want that, and yet it was through that that he redeemed the world, you see. And so there is something in the human heart that says, Lord, if you can spare me the trial, do it. But if I have to go into the trial, then deliver me from the evil potential that is in there. That's the essence of it. It's a prayer based off self-distrust. It is the humility of self-distrust that grows out of the previous petition. Because I know that I'm a sinner. Because I sense my debt. Because I've gone through the pain over and over again of confession so many times. Because I've been uh, bruised and battered in this sinful world around me that continues to bump into me. I ask God, deliver from me from these things. I cannot do them on my own. I don't know about you. I need to set a watchman over my eyes. I need to set a watchman over my ears. I need to set a watchman over my mouth. I have to be careful what I go and what I see and, and who I talk to what about. I don't trust myself. And when I get myself into a trying situation, it's at that point that I rush into the presence of God. I retreat to the presence of God and say, God, I will be overwhelmed in this thing unless you come to my aid. And so it's a prayer based on God's protection. His protection. The kingdom church. We live in a fallen world. And that fallen world pounds against him with temptations of great strength, which he and his own humanness can never resist. This is a fallen world, people. Just look at the nature itself. What do we see? Man faces earthquakes and floods and fires and pestilences. That's just on the natural level. Look at the emotional world, grief and care and anxiety, the inability to handle attitudes and constantly shriveling up man's spirit 
envy, stings him, hate embitters him, greed like a canker eats away at him. His affections are misplaced, his love is trampled upon, his confidence is prayed, uh, his confidence is betrayed. Rich, he steps on the poor, poor, he seeks to dethrone the rich. Prisons, institutions, hospitals mark the emotional upheaval of man. Look at the spiritual world we're in. That's the darkest and thickest of the blackest of them all. Man is out of harmony with God. He's running out of sync with God's divine plan. He may want to do right, but he feels that irresistible pull of being pulled down into that gravity of evil. And as the Lord gives you eyes to see, the realities of this world become especially apparent. Christianity isn't a playground. It is a battleground. And it's fallen world every way you cut it. So we live with that knowledge. We, we live in this fallenness. And so the cry of the heart of the believer is, God, lead me out of the potential evil that's in my trials. Let's look at this phrase uh, itself in verse 13. Do not lead us into temptation. Would God do that? Turn to James 1 for a minute. Turn to James chapter 1. There's a couple of verses I'd like you to look at. James chapter 1 verse 13. We started on it, but there's more there. Would God lead us into temptation? James says, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So God never tempts anyone. Now God may allow Satan to bring certain trials, for example, into Job's life. But Satan does the tempting, not God. God may allow, as in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, um, some sinful believer in the church to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, it says. But it's, it's Satan who, flick, who inflicts it, not God. Sometimes in his encompassing will, he allows that. And by the way, you will note that God allows all that is because he's in control of everything. <laughs> so that's no problem for your theology. God has to allow everything that is or couldn't be. God is in control. So there are times God allows certain trials. There are times when God allows Satan to have his own way in our lives because we've been disobedient and unfaithful. But there's also times, like in Job's case, when God allows Satan to do things to prove how righteous we are. But God never is the tempter. He's never the tempter. Evil never touches God. Uh, quite on the contrary, James chapter 1, verse 14, we continue. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And I think yeah, uh, he's drawn away as of his own lust is the internal drawing of our fallen flesh. And, and when he is enticed, you could add in parenthesis by Satan. Satan is the external pulling that we go through. Men sin because they're tempted. They are tempted eternally by their lust and then uh, e externally enticed by Satan. Verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. But watch this. Verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. 
Do not make a mistake at this point. When sin comes and lust comes and temptation comes, remember this. Verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, neither shadow of turning. Know this, that every good and perfect gift comes from God, from above, and that will never vary, and God will never turn from that, so that when evil comes, it comes not from God. And it's important to understand this biblical truth, uh, because people will hassle about this all of the time. Uh, God allows evil, and that's in his own choice, and we might have to wait till eternity to ever find out why that is anyway. But God allows evil, but God never does evil. Nor does he tempt you to do evil. There's no connection, and you have to keep that tension in your mind. God allows certain things, but they are never an expression of his mind or of his character. In fact, if you want to know what God feels about temptation, simply listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. In other words, he wanted them to avoid it. <laughs> and so how does, how does uh, Satan tempt us? 1 John 2, 19, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and what? Pride of life. And it says, and these are of the world, they are not of the Father. So God does not tempt us to do evil. Rather, God's desires is that we watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. So let's now go back and apply this to Matthew 6 and look at that word temptation again. Do not lead us into temptation. We see that word temptation here, and it's this is one of those words I think it's important we stop at. There's certain words I, I um, go and, and check into that are... Uh, think are rather important this word is parosmos and it's a word that's used all over the scriptures um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good parosmos it simply means a test or a trial now the english word temptation means seduction to evil right but the word temptation is not always the right translation sometimes the word is translated test Sometimes the word is translated prove. Sometimes it's translated as trial. Sometimes it's translated temptation. And that's because it can be any of those things. We think of temptation as that seductive act which draws us into sin. But the word parosmos here would probably be better translated testings or trials. Now let me give you a thought here. Anytime there is a legitimate trial or test, there is always the possibility to pass. And the possibility to what? Fail. Or it isn't a test, right? <laughs> you got to have the possibility of passing or failing, succeeding or not succeeding. So when God brings on a trial, there is always the possibility that the trial can be turned into a temptation. Joseph said in Genesis 50 verse 20 regarding his brothers selling them into Egypt, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? good in every trial we go through in life god brings it along and it's a test for us 
to exercise spiritual muscle, to strengthen us, to grow us to maturity in Christ. But in the midst of that, uh, if we don't perceive it through the eyes of God, uh, if we don't commit it to God and stand in his strength, Satan turns into a temptation, entices our lust, draws us in to sin. So mark it, the word is very fitting. So when the prayer says, lead us not into a trial, I believe the implication of the prayer is, Lord, don't ever lead us into a trial uh, which will present to us such a temptation that I will be, not be able to bear it or to resist it. Does that make sense? Lord, don't, don't ever lead us into something that we can't handle, Lord. Don't ever give us a trial that is going to become a, an irresistible temptation, but rather deliver us from any trial that would bring evil upon us. Don't put us into something that we can't handle in your strength, Lord. And you know what? That's just a claim of a promise, as we will see in a little bit. The term implies testing. And by the way, uh, anytime you see a word like parosmos, with the osmos there in the ending, that's the Greek noun, and the osmos implies a process. The osmos process. So don't put us into any process, any set of circumstances, any situation that is going to draw us into an irresistible sin. Now, James has told us, and I think it has to be assumed here, that God is not going to do this. <laughs> a holy and sinless, absolute righteous God is not going to incite us into sin. He's not going to allure us into sin. He's not going to tempt us into sin. But he will bring things into our lives that become tests for us. You're walking along, you pass a certain magazine, or you're hold a high school flame. It's a test. Google sends you off into some perverted website because you don't know how to type in the search correctly. It's a test. A certain movie comes on your television. It's a test. It can be a test to show your spiritual strength and cause you to grow, or it's a test you fail as a devil turns it into a temptation and incites your loss and draws you into sin. For example, you get fired from your job. It might be a test. How are you going to handle it? On top, positive, joyous, committing it to the Lord, you pass. But in the midst of that, Satan comes in and says, that dirty for nothing boss of yours, you should say everything you can to ruin his reputation. Talk about him. Bad mouth him. Gripe and complain about him to everyone you know. Oh, and say a few words to God, too, for making it tough on you. And so Satan's working on the temptation end on the same circumstance while God is working on the trial. It's kind of like in Matthew chapter 4. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be parazoed, parazoed by the devil, to be tested. For God, it was a test to prove his virtue. For Satan, it was a temptation to destroy his virtue. And so that's the way it's going to be in our trials. That's why trials are valuable. You've got to have trials in, to be, enable you to grow. And at the same time, they potentiate sin. Job said, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Because he approached his trial the right way. James 1 says, Count it all as joy 
when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Peter said, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by very parosmos, trials, testings, so that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested with fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the trials to prove the, the genuine gold of your faith. Parosmos is a trial, a test. God's purpose is for good. Satan tries to turn it for evil. So summing it up, what are we saying? A trial is a test to prove your strength to exercise that spiritual muscle and to develop that spiritual dependence. It's like Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, when it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. God wanted to show what a virtuous man he was, and he strengthened his faith. But Satan wants to turn it into a temptation. So the cry of this verse is simply this. Oh God, do not allow us to be led. Do not permit us to be led into a parosmos, which becomes an irresistible temptation that we cannot handle. And do you, do you want to know something that's interesting? If this is your prayer, and I hope that it is, it means that the Lord has to work out your whole entire life. All right, because there are certain things that we need to grow. We need to be tested and exercised in spiritual strength. But if they came to you at the wrong time, at that wrong season in your life, while you were maybe too young in the faith and you wouldn't be able to handle them, and instead of growing in them, you would fall to them. For example, there are certain temptations that come along to me now that six, seven, eight years ago, oh, I tripped and stumbled constantly. But having been strengthened in the Lord, I'm now able to deal with so much more than I was able to back then in his strength. So Satan and the flesh enter our trials, trials that God brings to perfect us, trials that God brings to help strengthen us, trials that God brings to, to teach us to trust him, Trials that bring us and drive us to the word of God and to our knees in prayerful dependence on him. And into those trials comes Satan with his temptations. And depending on how you respond, the tale will be told. So if this petition, beloved, is a safeguard against presumption, and it's a safeguard, I would say, against that false sense of security. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, When anyone thinks he stands, you better take heed lest you what? Fall. You think you've arrived spiritually, but you haven't. A very rich and simple verse to be on guard with the full armor of God. We're in a spiritual battle, brothers and sisters. It is not a playground, it is a battleground. And by the way, the, the word into, do not lead us into, is also an interesting word in the Greek, it's eis, uh, E-I-S. 
and some have compared it to into the power of or into the hands of those snares and entrappings that we read about in scripture so that what it is saying is do not cause us to be led into the hands of that trial into the grips of that trial in other words if the trial is all around us that's one thing but don't let us get into the hands of that trial that's when it becomes a temptation like as we're floating along in the in the boat we're in the boat and the sea can churn all it wants to but keep us in that boat don't let us go into the sea or we'll drown don't let us get caught into the vortex of the trial keep us in your hands in the midst of that trial lord and by the way our dear lord prayed a similar prayer in john 17 verse 15 when he said father I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And that's the essence of it. It's a prayer for God to defend us when we are being tested. So Satan and the flesh do not turn his tests into a temptation, which become irresistible and draw us into lust and lust into sin. Now, how do we deal with that when we're in the middle of a trial? When we begin to feel that temptation coming in, here we are, we're in the trial, somebody has died, we lost our job, we're angry at our wife or our kids, we have conflicts in relationships, we're upset at the church, whatever it is, we're in a trial, financial, emotional, physical, psychological, spiritual, we're in this trial, we're saying, all right, Lord, <laughs> this is a growing time, all right, and Satan begins to hit us and he wants to make us bitter and angry, how do we deal with it? I think James 4, verse 7, gives us a simple word. We don't have to go into it into detail. I want to wrap up our thoughts here. But in James 4, verse 7, it says this. Submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves to God? How do we do that? <laughs> what do we mean submit to God? Well, uh, that means to get under God's lordship. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> That means I'm going to submit to God and his lordship. That means I'm going to do what he says. <laughs> I need to live in submission to his biblical principles. To the call of his word. Earlier, James says in, in verse 5 of this chapter, do you think the scriptures saith in vain? Talk about the, the scriptures. Submit yourselves then to a holy God. How has God disclosed himself? How has God revealed his will how has God revealed the principles of his lordship? How has God manifested that which he wants us to do in his word? And so we enter into a situation, a trial. What we do then is we begin to order our responses in that trial according to the principles of God's word. And his word says we are to submit to him. So as we order our life according to the principles of his word, we find that in that way we resist the devil and, and the devil has to what? Flee. He has to flee from you. That's a great promise, isn't it? Now, submitting to God isn't something that you just spout out. Oh, God, I submit to you. That does us no good. Submitting to God is ordering my life to respond according to the biblical revelation of God's will. And so in the midst of a trial, I pray, God, I need your strength infused in me. Fill me with the power of your, your spirit, and I submit to the truth of your word. 
I put on the full armor of God. And my responses and my attitudes and my actions and my thoughts and my deeds are all in submission to God's word. You can pray submit to God all you want, but until you get your life in order, it isn't going to do any good for you to pray that way. You can say, oh, please, I submit to you, Lord. Please protect me. And if you just keep on sinning, you're violating the very thing that you're asking for. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is his word that is hidden in the heart that we might not sin. It is word that is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God that defend us against the attacks in Ephesians 6. We submit to God and as we submit to the truths of his word and take up the sword of the spirit. We begin to put in use in our lives in a manner that we resist the devil and he flees and that trial stays a trial never becomes an irresistible temptation what is this petition saying beloved listen now i want you to get it we are in a battle we are in a battle beloved our enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour we face a very real danger living in a cursed world. We are constantly being battered by evil all around us. This prayer confesses our inadequacies to deal with that evil on our own. It confesses the weakness of our flesh. It takes into account the fact that we are impotent and demands protection from a holy and loving good father. So we submit to his word. My heart shrinks at trials. I don't like trials. <laughs> as soon as I can get into a trial, I'm uh, thinking how quickly I can get out of one. But when I look back on trials in the past, I actually get kind of happy over them. They bring an element of joy. Nobody likes them, but we see God is faithful. And so I don't just pray, Lord, I just wanted you to know these trials are, are building up so such great strength in me just keep them coming lord i i love the workout i don't pray like that christ didn't pray like that he said let this cup pass for me but then he turned around and said but not my will your will be done father so we cry with christ father spare me the trial but if it fits your wisdom and it fits your purpose and it fits your plan then protect me through the trial so i can come out like Daniel's three friends did without even the smell of smoke. So I can come out as Daniel did as he walked out of that lion's den untouched. Daniel needed protection in the lion's den and so do we. We can't do it on our own. This has to be a divine resource. A divine resource. Now let me ask you, do you think God will hear this prayer? Do you think God will protect you from trials and these irresistible temptations that draw you into sin? I do. And it's based on a verse I want you to see. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Some of you might remember this who have been with us a while. We did a whole series called The Way Out. A Way Out, based on these verses right here. One of the great verses in all the Bible, and you knew I was going to get there sooner or later, didn't you? What's it say? Let's start in verse uh, 12 there. So if you think you are standing firm, take heed lest you fall. Then in verse 13, there is no 
parasmos. No trial, no temptation that is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. You're not going to get one of these that someone else hasn't already had. All right? And in the midst of it, look at this. God is faithful. Do you know that in every trial, God is faithful? He has promised never to leave you and never forsake you. He is faithful, and I'm so glad about that. Aren't you glad God didn't say, you know what, you're going to have to deal with a lot of trials in your life, and I'm going to try to hit as many of them as I can. That'd be pretty awful. No, he says, I'm faithful. I'll be there in every one of them. And he will not let you be parazzoed, tempted beyond what you can bear. Never. You can never say, well, that was too much for me, Lord. He'll never allow that. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And you know what the way out is? The way out is through. The way out is through. You go through the trial like a tunnel. God's Highway 101. That's where he protects you on his road. You go through it. If you get derailed, if you take the exit, you go into the temptation. You've sinned. You've missed it. You've missed his highway. He's promised the way out is through in order that you may be able to endure it. What does this say then? God never allows a trial that is more than you can handle. That's the answer to the request. Lead us not into trials, but deliver us from evil. So God says, all right, I will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. <laughs> See? In other words, we're only laying claim to the promise. And if we meet the condition, we have right to the claim, to the promise. What's the condition? James 4, 7 was the, was the condition I found. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the condition. That sums the prayer up. It closes then with a, what's called a doxology. The doxology is simply this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's a doxology. You just uh, uh, declare it. You can sing it. You, you offer it to God. You don't try to dissect it. You offer it in praise to, to the Lord. And by the way, there's manuscript evidence that suggests Jesus didn't even say that part of the prayer. That's why it's probably not included with most of your newer translations in the Bible. Some manuscripts have it. Some manuscripts don't. Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's true. Amen. His kingdom, his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It echoes 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. We'll close with this. Yours, O Lord. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Wow, what have we learned from this prayer? All that we need is available to us. That a son or daughter of the king can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 6 says, let us draw near with confidence. Some translate it boldness to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
we recognize we have a loving, loving Father in heaven and seated right beside him is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the high priest who's experienced our pains, who was tempted and tried yet without sin. Yet Jesus sits victorious over sin and death. He took our sins upon the cross, defeated death as he rose out of the grave. So as God sits in his rightful place, our great high priest seated beside him, he sees our needs. He hears our cries. He is our strength. And as our needs are brought to him, he is able and willing to meet them in his wonderful eternal supply. If you are in need of prayers this morning, 